We're going to use this mic. <laughs> May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our salvation. Amen. Well, good morning again. It's my great, great joy to be with you, the good people of Church of Reconciliation this morning. I'm uh, so, so grateful for this congregation in the Diocese of West Texas. I'm grateful that this congregation for for several decades now has worked hard to be a welcoming place to all sorts and conditions of people uh, across the city of San Antonio. I'm so grateful that this congregation incorporates the beauty of the arts in its worship and liturgy and its congregational life and in this beautiful and holy space here. I'm grateful, grateful for the ministry of your interim rector, Phil Mason. <laughs> grateful for his guidance, his leadership, his pastoral care, his love of you as you go through a transition, uh, looking for a new rector for this great congregation. You should know that every Tuesday morning, the staff of the Diocese of West Texas celebrates the Eucharist at St. John's Chapel on our Dawson grounds, and we name Church of Reconciliation by name every Tuesday, asking the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and guidance in your process of discerning and calling your next rector. So know you're not in your transition alone, but we pray for you every single week. And I also just want to take a moment to give thanks to God for the ministry and the witness and the faith and the perseverance of the Reverend Robert Woody, rector of this parish for many, many years, leader in this community and in this diocese who entered into the near presence of our Lord a week or so ago and his service was on Wednesday. We lift him up in our prayers at this altar today where he is present and we keep in our hearts and in our thoughts his bride and his family as well. In our gospel reading this morning, we heard the parable called the parable of the five talents. We heard it in from the gospel of Matthew. And it's important to know what was the context in which Jesus told this parable. The parable of the five talents was told during that week that we call Holy Week. It's in the very end of Jesus' public ministry. Jesus, by the time he tells this parable, he has already entered into the city of Jerusalem as people waved palms that day we call Palm Sunday and shouted, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He has already gone to the temple and turned over the tables of the money changers and scattered their coins and driven people out and paused worship in the temple for a few moments. Tension with the Jewish religious leaders of the day is rising. Conflict is rising. People are concerned and asking questions. People are upset and they're asking Jesus, who are you? By what authority are you doing these things? But the real question they're asking is, are you claiming to be the Messiah? Are you claiming to be the one sent from God to save God's people? So that tension is rising. And in the middle of all of that that's going on in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells several parables, including the one that we heard today, the parable of the five talents. 
And that parable would have caught people's attention in two major ways. And the first way is when Jesus told this parable, people would have sat up and listened because it involved a lot of money. A lot of money. Now, we don't all trade with talents or denarius or shekels today. So let me put this in some modern context. A talent, one talent, was 15 years wages for an average worker. So to put that in modern Texas American dollars, the average Texan, the median income for somebody in Texas this year is $67,404. That's the median income in Texas. So five talents, based on that median income, five talents is $5,055,000. And two talents is $2,022,000. And one measly talent, which all of us would love to have, is $1,011,000. That would have got people's attention when Jesus said there was a landowner and he entrusted his slaves, his servants, with five talents and two talents and one talent and left and went into another country. He was talking about enormous wealth and enormous trust, each according to their ability. And it also would have got people's attention because they would have thought, what crazy person would ever give $5 million to their servant and leave town for an indefinite period of time. It's outlandish. It was reckless. It was foolish. And yet that's the parable that Jesus told. He gives to one five talents, to one two, to another one, and he leaves town. And when he returns, he settles his accounts. And as you heard, the first two servants did really, really well. They doubled their master's money. The one who had $5 million came back and said, I made you $5 million more. Here's your $10 million. And the one who had two talents did likewise and returned $2 million to his master. But then as you heard, this third slave did not do near as well as the other two. He didn't do anything bad or evil or sinful or wrong. He just didn't do anything. The wealth was given him. He didn't spend it on himself. He didn't spend it recklessly. He didn't invest it poorly in a shady investment. He just didn't do anything. He took it and he dug a hole and he buried the money in the ground. And when his master returned, he dug it up and brought it back and said, you gave me one talent here is what you gave me exactly the way it was. And he even tells his master why he didn't do anything with the money. He says to him, I was afraid. I was afraid. So I buried your talent in the ground. He was frozen into inaction by his fear. Fear of losing the money, maybe. Fear of running out of money, Maybe fear of what other people might say about how he used or invested the money. For whatever reason, he was afraid. And he didn't do anything. Now the parable is an allegory. The people in the parable represent something else. 
The landowner represents God, who has generously entrusted the Jewish religious leaders with the covenant God had made with their ancestors. And instead of being a light to enlighten the nations and drawing all people everywhere into a relationship with the God who loves them, they have buried that light in the ground. They've buried it in legal fundamentalism and in their own elitism. And they know when Jesus talks about this servant who buried his talent in the ground, that he's talking about them and their failure to do what they have been entrusted to do. So no wonder the tension was running high. And just a few days later, Jesus will be crucified and buried and then finally resurrected. So what might this parable of the five talents have to say to you and to me and to Church of Reconciliation today? First, I think, just like Jesus said in that day, we're reminded today that our God is recklessly generous. That our God pours unceasing blessings into our laps, giving us immeasurable riches. I mean, just think about it. The value, the unsurpassable value of the gift of God's love. The gift of God's grace for you and for me. The power of the Holy Spirit given to us. God is recklessly generous. God's presence in our lives, our answered prayers, our strength to go day after day on this Christian journey, God gives to us generously. God gives to us His Son, and God gives to us the church, including this congregation, this community. And individually, God gives to us abilities and skills and family and friends, a home, a church home, wealth and possessions, the ability to earn a living, hearts to love and minds to think. And in fact, every beat of our heart and every breath in our lungs in the very beginning of each new day is one more gift to us from our recklessly generous and loving God. When we think about all that God has recklessly, generously, abundantly, unceasingly given to us, then our hearts must be filled with thanksgiving, with gratitude for the God who gives so much to us. I know that Church of Reconciliation is in the middle of its generosity, its stewardship, its giving, its pledging time. And thanksgiving is really only the pure, only pure Christian motive for doing anything in terms of giving. We give not because of guilt or not because we ought to or not because of loyalty, but we give because of what God has given us. We give out of gratitude, giving back to God, a portion of what God has given us in thanksgiving for all of God's blessings. I think the second point the parable makes is to acknowledge that when it comes to money and when it comes to giving and when it comes to managing the blessings God has given to us, that quite often there's some anxiety and there's some fear. And so I want to get a little personal with you this morning. And I want to tell you a little bit about my own and my wife Jackie's, our own experience with giving and how Jackie and I overcame quite a bit of anxiety and fear about how we handled giving and 
money and all that God had given to us. I grew up at St. Francis Church here in San Antonio, which is over by the medical center, probably best known for being next to Alamo Cafe. When I ask people ask me where is, it, I say, well, it's next to Alamo Cafe. They're like, oh yeah, yeah. In fact, when they built Alamo Cafe, they cut a deal with St. Francis to pave an extra parking lot for their employees. So they had and still have a really good relationship. And when I grew up going to Sunday school and acolyting, uh, every Sunday morning I would open my sock drawer and I had this little box of envelopes. Anybody have these? And I had a date on each one, and I'd pull out the date, the envelope with today's date, and I'd put some of my allowance in there, a quarter, or as I got older, maybe a dollar, and I'd take it to church with me. And a good usher would come around our Sunday school class and pick all those up from the kids, and then during offertory would bring them, and they'd be offered up at the altar. And that's how I learned to give growing up. Anybody else do that? There's more of y'all. Y'all just, it's okay to raise your hand. It's really okay. It's really all right. And I felt pretty good about that. Years later, after Jack and I were married, we got married while I was in seminary. I was, it was right before the beginning of my senior year. And I was, we were living in Alexandria, Virginia, right outside of Washington, D.C. And we worried about money all the time, mainly because we didn't have any. I was a full-time student. I was living on a scholarship uh, to pay for my tuition. And we, uh, even though our apartment was subsidized by the seminary rent and cost of living in the Washington, D.C. area was horribly high, as it still is. And so we lived paycheck to paycheck. Jackie got a job as a leasing agent at an apartment complex. And that's how we lived. Uh, We had one car that we shared. And we worried about money all the time. Every time I sat down to pay the electric bill and the rent and you know, just the basics, uh, I worried about money. Um, And so we had a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety around money. And during my last semester of seminary, I signed up to take this class on church stewardship. And I took this class because I thought, I'm going to graduate, I'm going to be in a parish, and I need to know how to run a giving program, a stewardship program. So I took the class thinking I would learn how to manage a program. And instead, when I went to class, the professor said, let's do some Bible study. We all got our Bibles out, and we spent a solid week or more reading every passage in Scripture that talks about money or possessions or tithing or giving. We read all the Old Testament uh, stories about bringing an offering from your fields or an offering from your flock, uh, the first of the harvest. We read all of those. Uh, and then we read a lot of Jesus' words because half, depending on the account, half of all of Jesus' words are about the relationship between his followers and our money or possessions. Half of them, including the parable we heard this morning. And I think Jesus talked about that a lot because Jesus knew that our money and possessions could either be a big stumbling block for us in our lives or could be a great tool for growing our relationship with God. So we did all of this Bible study. And then finally, at the end of a week or so, our professor said, here's your homework. Go home, get out your calculator, and figure out what percentage of your income are you returning to God in thanksgiving for all God's blessings in your life. We had talked about tithing and the biblical concept of tithe, the idea that you, you try to give back a tenth, 10%. 
I was a little skeptical about it because I'd heard a lot of guilt-tripping sermons about tithing uh, when I was growing up. And I was like, it seems like a weird formula, but it's also very biblical. But I went home and I got my calculator out and I did our homework and we felt pretty good about our giving. We went to church every Sunday and we either wrote a check for like $20 or $25 or we put $15 in the plate, uh, which was pretty good for a student, I thought, especially when I looked around and a lot of people around me put $1 bills in the plate. I began to think if they got rid of the $1 bill and made $2 bills the lowest currency, it would double church giving. Just think about it. <laughs> but anyway, so I got the calculator and I did the math. And I was really surprised. Because what I found out about myself and about our giving was that we were giving less than 1% of all that we had been blessed with back to God and thanksgiving for all that God had done for us. It was like 0.6%. Even though we thought we were being pretty good. And what we realized was that our giving was rather random and unintentional. That we hadn't really thought it through, we hadn't really prayed about it, we hadn't really done the math that we gave, but it was kind of hit and miss and unintentional. And so we talked and we said some prayers and we decided that there was no way in the world that we could give 10%. It was just impossible. But we wanted to do something more intentional and more faithful with what God had given us. And so we started at 4%. And beginning that month, uh, we paid our bills twice a month, and twice a month, the first check I would write out was 4% to the church we were attending in Alexandria, Virginia. And that's how we started giving. We started at 4%, trying to be more intentional and more faithful. And when we did that, a really amazing thing happened. Uh, we didn't get more wealthy. We didn't like win the lottery or anything because we were giving more. But what really happened was our anxiety and our fear around giving almost disappeared. All those worries we'd had about how we were going to make it, even though we were giving more money away, they really disappeared. We became much more aware of God's blessings in our lives and able to count them more. We were less anxious. We were more faithful. We were much more thrilled in knowing that our offerings were being combined with other people's offerings to do the work inside and outside of our congregation. And we moved from giving because we ought to do it to learning the joy of giving. Learning the joy of giving. About four or five months later, we increased our giving from 4% to 5%, just 1%. And then when I be, we graduated and became rector of St. Paul's and Brady, we began to give 10%. And we've done that ever since. And it's changed our lives. Our relationship with God has grown more because of our intentional, thoughtful, faithful giving than almost anything else we've done, including cursios and retreats and studies because of that giving. And it's because in that process we were able to bring God into a really powerful part of our lives. All of those decisions we make about money and possessions, we began to realize that those aren't just financial decisions. They are spiritual decisions. And as Jesus says, uh, where your wealth is, there your heart is also. And we began to recognize 
that. The practice of giving, the practice of stewardship, the practice of generosity is not just church fundraising. It's not just a way for the church to raise money to pay its bills. The entire goal of giving is to grow people's relationship with the living God. And that's what happened to us. I can tell you that whether you give a huge amount of money to reconciliation this year, or whether you give nothing to reconciliation this year, that God will love you abundantly. God's love for you does not go up if you give a big gift, and it does not go down if you give a small gift. That does not change, because God loves you and me abundantly. But our giving is just a tool, like prayer or worship, a tool to help us grow in our relationship with God through our giving. So during the next few weeks, I know y'all are in your generosity process and your Pledge Sunday process. I invite you to do a couple of things in these weeks ahead. First, count your blessings. Because giving starts with Thanksgiving. Count your blessings. Count all of them. It's a good week since Thanksgiving is this week. Count those blessings of family and faith and friends and the Holy Spirit and love around every side. Count the blessings of this congregation, this church family, this faith family that is yours. Count a home, the place you live. Uh, Count all the blessings in your life. And then second, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid like that third servant who buried the investment in the ground. And instead, get your calculator out and do the math. You don't have to tell anybody what the answer was when you did the math, but at least you'll know where you are and how you might be more intentional and faithful in managing that all has given to you. So do the math. My prayer for you is that you grow in grace and in the knowledge and love of God and of God's abundant, reckless blessings in your life. Amen.